If you have a Bible with you, please open it to 2 Thessalonians. We'll be reading shortly from verses 3 through the end of the first chapter, uh, verse 12. We're reminded now, as much as ever, how difficult making judgments can be. It is incredibly difficult to do this. We often work with limited information. We certainly do that even now that we have video of everything that anyone ever does. We still have limited information to be able to make sense of what we see. And not only do we have limited information, we have limited understanding of the information that we have. And on top of that, we are limited even more by our own faulty judgments, presuppositions, and preoccupations, and even Desires. Whether those desires and preoccupations and presuppositions are good or bad, they still can cloud our judgment. I was reminded this week uh, of a, a quote from the Lord of the Rings. I, I rarely quote from Lord of the Rings, so um, I can do it every once in a while. It, it's okay. Um, but I was reminded of the moment in the Fellowship of the Ring where the group is down in the mines of Moria and they are trying to def- discern their way through, and, and Frodo looks back and he has seen Gollum, this sort of evil creature who has been following them, longing for the ring. Uh, he has been following and lurking behind them, and Frodo says, it's a pity that Bilbo didn't kill Gollum when he had the chance. To which Gandalf replies, pity, it's pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many that live deserve death. Some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment, for even the very wise cannot see all ends. We would do well to listen to that. We oftentimes make snap judgments. We want to roll out judgments, and some would even make out judgments about death and life as though they were the arbitrators of such things. Yet the response to these quick judgments, the response to these presumptuous judgments, cannot be to cancel out God's judgment, as though because we can't determine what is right or wrong and we can't determine the equivalent punishment for what has happened, that God somehow must be lacking as well. The final judgment of all people, the wrath and the justice of our God, is not something that ought to embarrass Christians. But rather, I think what we will get from Paul today is something that ought to encourage us. Let us turn then to 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 through 12 and read these important verses. There Paul says this. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of our God. The first thing I would like to put forward for you this morning is the evidence of God's justice. The evidence of God's justice. This section starts as a typical Pauline Thanksgiving. Paul almost always writes these Thanksgivings in the beginning of his letters. Uh, Most notably are the exceptions to this rule. And so he thanks God, especially for the Thessalonians, which he is clearly thankful for. He, he is, in 1 Thessalonians, talked about how thankful he is for their faith and their steadfastness. And then even here, he continues that. He is thankful to them. And as a matter of fact, he goes over the top here. He says, we ought to always give thanks. He is obligated to do so. And it's not as though he's obligated in saying, well, we'd rather not give thanks to you, but God has made it clear that we ought to. He clearly wants to give thanks to them. He says that it is right that they do so, primarily because their faith is flourishing. We don't know really the relationship between this letter and the letter to the Thessalonians that Paul has already written in 1 Thessalonians. We don't know what has been reported to him, what he has heard in between these letters. We are right, I think, to assume that 2 Thessalonians came second, and that it happened a couple of months after. Perhaps what he is writing about here is that what was lacking in their faith back in chapter 3, verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians, has started to grow, that they are they're flourishing in their faith, and that their love one for another is increasing. Even as they had loved one another, that love continues to grow and grow and grow. And so Paul, Paul doesn't just give thanks to them. He says, we often brag about you. We often proclaim how good your faith is and how wonderful your Love is flourishing and growing for one another to other churches. He says, we boast about you in the churches of God. Specifically, I think that he boasts and brags about them in the context in which these wondrous things are happening. Their love is growing and their faith is flourishing even amidst persecution and affliction. It is indeed good to do so. It's as if Paul is holding up the Thessalonians saying, look at what God is doing amongst these people. Look at the goodness and the quality of the faith of these people. They are persevering. That idea of steadfastness is they are continuing. They're they're holding on to what has been given to them and they are clinging to it as we just got done talking about clinging to the anchor. This is exactly what the Thessalonians have done. And they are faithful It's not just that they have faith. It's not just that they're holding to right doctrines, but they are living out those doctrines correctly. Sometimes in English, we get a little bit fussy between the idea of faith and faithfulness. I don't think that we really ought to be that picky about such things. To be faithful is to have faith. And to have faith must be to be faithful. You can't believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and not actually live it out in your life. And Paul says you are persevering and your faithfulness is present and it is going forward. We know of these things. 
This is in the context of all the persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. The enduring or the bearing that the Thessalonians are doing in context gives the impression that they are following Jesus' command, they are following his admonition, and they are following his example. The idea is one of putting up with or or allowing things to happen without fighting against them. They have this wonderful example of Jesus, one who, although was not in the wrong, refused to open up his mouth and to speak of such things. First Peter puts it this way. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This was the example that the Thessalonians were following. They endured. They patiently put up with. They did not respond in evil terms, evil for that which is evil done to them. Not only are they following the example, but clearly the admonition in the passage directly before our passage that we read already this morning for repentance, Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We will come back to that idea. He then goes on to say, but I say to you, not that eye for eye, tooth for a tooth is wrong, but this is not your place now. Your place is not to extract the penalty from people. He goes on to say, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Let those words sink in. Do not resist him. Not, you know, resist him a bit, but don't, don't come to the point of hitting him. Or not, if you hit him, make sure you don't knock his glasses off. Or at least keep him conscious, right? He, he stops well short of that. He says, you're not even to resist him. Don't resist it. If somebody wants to do evil to you, do not resist it. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, drag him to court, get a good lawyer, and re-sue him in return. Wait, no, hang on. That was textual problems there. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. They endure. They put up with. They don't resist the evil that's happening to them. Not only is Jesus' example, but his admonition is here. This is precisely what the Thessalonians have done. They themselves have done exactly what Jesus did. They entrust themselves to the one who judges justly. They don't feel like they need to make it right. They know that God will make it right. They understand the nature of the world. They understand their place in it. Paul had taught them and taught them well. This world is at odds with you. It will always be at odds with you. They know that persecution would come. They knew that it would come for them as believers. They don't fight it. They don't pitch a fit. 
They don't worry endlessly. They don't complain about it to authorities who cannot fix the nature of the problem. The nature of the problem is not with government. The nature of the problem is not with the mob. The nature of the problem is with human hearts and the difference between every worldly kingdom and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The kingdoms of this world reject a God they can't see and they reject the Messiah they can see. And therefore, they reject anyone who lodges themselves with that Messiah and with that God. The Thessalonians know well these problems, and they endure the persecution and the afflictions that occur in spite of them. And for all of this, Paul is thankful. Now, verse 5, which is set aside from 3 and 4, is a transitional verse. But given what it says, I think it goes better with three and four, and so we will include it here. The oddity is in this verse what this evidence is. Paul begins verse five by saying, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. What is that evidence? That evidence is nothing less than the fact that through persecutions and through afflictions, these people These Thessalonians, these young believers, continued faithfully following the gospel of God. They continued faithfully proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ and living according to the gospel that has been presented to them. This is what the evidence is. And so the evidence of God's justice is, is God right to make you part of the kingdom? And what Paul is saying is God is indeed right to make you part of the kingdom. It is seen that he is just in doing so because even with afflictions and persecutions happening on you, you persevere and you endure. You are faithful. God's right judgment is that the Thessalonians are indeed worthy of the kingdom. They are worthy of the kingdom because they suffer just as their Lord suffered. Not simply suffering the same things, but suffering them the same way. Probably mixed in with all of this is this sort of worldly thought that might say, well, listen, if God is really blessing you, if God is for you, then wouldn't this show up in the way that the world kind of works out for you? This is the way that all sort of Greek religions thought. If you have the appeasement of a God, if God is going to show you favor, then it shows up with abundant crops and fertility and blessings and honor. And this is exactly what we have today in something like, you know, the prosperity gospel. The blessing of God makes you prosperous. It gives you health, it gives you wealth, it gives you favor with others, none of which the Thessalonians have. And what Paul is writing to them is saying, far from showing you that you don't belong with God, what these persecutions show is that you suffer like Jesus and in doing so, you are actually worthy of the kingdom of God. That's what he says, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. That is the justice of God. That is the judgment that God is handing out. So the Thessalonians, in walking through this persecution with faith and faithfulness and steadfastness, demonstrate that God was just to consider them worthy of the kingdom. Just as Jesus said, this is a kingdom that you cannot see. He talks about this at the end of the book of John. So then the Thessalonians belong to this kingdom that no one can see, but they are proven to be right for that kingdom. Friends, for us, Persevere. Continue to hold on to the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. And you cannot, 
if that is what Paul is stressing here, that they are, they are persevering through the afflictions and the persecutions, you cannot just look back on the faithful things that you have done. You can't just remember the things that you said. There is not just this moment of time in which you were saved. Thinking back on that is precisely the opposite of what Paul is saying here. They're counted worthy not because of something that happened 15 years ago when they were a little boy and they got baptized. They're counted worthy because now, currently, in their persecutions, they are persevering. We talk about the perseverance of the saints. This is the point. It's not once saved, always saved. That leaves a horribly wrong impression on people, an impression that is almost unshakable in them. That no matter where they are now, so long as they did something right once, they're okay. But we persevere, Christians persevere. We continue on in the faith, holding the faith, walking in the faith. We do so because of the second point. Not just the evidence of God's justice, but also, secondly, the enactment of God's justice. Because we rightly understand that more is needed than God simply giving people the thumbs up and saying, you are welcome here. There has to be justice done and justice needs to be seen done. And so Jesus, as he said, you have heard an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Paul comes back here and without giving us those same words, gives us something very close to it. He says, God considers it just. He considers it right. He considers it perfectly okay to afflict those who afflict you. So that when people want to afflict the work of Jesus Christ amongst people, when they want to afflict God's people, it is right for God to afflict them. It is just in God's eyes. As they have judged you, so they will be judged and also then to give rest to believers. Those who are made unrestful here because of those afflictions will receive rest by God in the future. This is the judgment of God. And we would rightly say that this is right and true and good. Give a hearty amen to it. Those who afflict are afflicted. Those who are afflicted get rest. Paul then goes on to explain how this is to happen. He does this by answering four questions. Who, why, how, and when. First, who. Who is it that will afflict this justice? It is none other than Jesus Christ himself. This is a very nice antidote to anyone who would think that Jesus is this picture of pure love and grace and mercy, but that the Father is filled with wrath and anger. No, the Son is fully God. God is not compartmentalized so that all of the wrath of the Godhead leaks into one person and all of the grace and mercy leaked into another. The Son hates sin just as much as the Father does. His wrath burns against it just as much as the Father's does. And so the Son is the one who shows up, who carries out the wrath of God. He might have come in the first instance as a lamb, but the second time he comes, he will be a lion and he will devour. He shows up, it says here, with his angels and in flaming fire. That last image comes as many of the images throughout here come from the book of Isaiah, specifically chapter 66, the very last book of Isaiah, or the last chapter, excuse me, of Isaiah. In verses 15 and 16, Isaiah writes this, For behold, the Lord will come in fire 
and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire or flaming fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. It is a thing to behold the whirlwind of fire that is God's wrath. You thought Sharknado was bad, right? Can you imagine what it would be like to be in the room where those people thought up this idea? You know what's terrifying? Tornadoes. You know what else is terrifying? Sharks. Let's put that together. How stupid, right? I've never, by the way, for the record, I've never seen it. I don't care to. Some of you probably love it, I'm sure, but much scarier than that is a flaming whirlwind of fire filled with God's wrath and anger. Those slain by the Lord shall be many. And again, as we talked about last week, we have a wonderful example of it here. Notice in Isaiah 66, who shows up to present the wrath of the divine in a flaming fire of whirlwind. It is none other than the Lord. Jews read that and they say, hey, that is God Almighty showing up to give justice. And Paul says, amen, it's Jesus showing up to give justice. Because the two are the same. Jesus burns with wrath against sin and he will come to provide justice. Why? Why? Verse 8. He will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It is not simply that he comes because people afflict other people and he hates that. And so he is going to recompense only those who afflict others, only those who really, really, really do bad. So your neighbor, who doesn't want anything to do with the gospel and shuns it, but still brings you tomatoes from his plants every now and then, who's actually a pretty decent guy in human standards, he will get off. Now Paul says, those who do not know God and who refuse to obey the gospel... And the gospel, friends, is not just an offer. Sometimes we present it that way. We, we say, hey, you know, I've got good news for you. Jesus Christ died for your sins, and you can receive salvation if you choose it. And that's true. It's good. It, it is an offer. But we ought not forget that it is a command. Every knee will bow on earth and below the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is a proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether you would have him be Lord of your life or not. Will you then obey the word of the Lord is the question that kind of confronts us. Will you obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Isaiah 66, again, the beginning of those verses, back all the way in verse 2 of that 66th chapter that begins to talk about this judgment, says this in verse 2, this is the one to whom I will look, and that look is a look of favor. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. Who doesn't just play loosey-goosey with the word of God, but who trusts it, who obeys it, who listens to it. In verse 4, Isaiah goes on to say this, I will also choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that which I did not delight. Do you believe and obey the gospel? Do you listen to the gospel? The word of the Lord that comes there is simply the word of the gospel that comes here. Paul thinks that the gospel must not just be believed, but obeyed. So does Jesus. 
Matthew 28, you are to teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. The gospel tells you that there is life in Christ, that he died for your sins and was raised for your justification, and that, as God's very word, you are to believe in the gospel, but you are also then to believe in the very word of God, which is none less than Jesus Christ himself. To say that you believe the gospel, but that you reject this part of it, or that part of it, or this commandment of it, or that commandment of it, means that you only accept Christ where he is convenient to you that you are the judge of what is good and true, thinking that you know better than God. That sounds an awful lot like the very thing that Eve did in the beginning, the very definition of sin, when God said, don't eat the fruit. She said, nah, pa, it looks like it's good for eating. Ate the peach, hence the fall. We do this. We reject the gospel. We say that we think that we know better than God. We cannot take the gospel in parts. We obey the gospel and what it calls and commands us to do. And this isn't a call for perfection. You will fail. You have sin in you. You will fail, you will fall. The humility that Isaiah speaks of is a humility to hear the word of God come to you, see that you are sinful, Repent of that sin, knowing that Jesus Christ is good and faithful to forgive you, that his blood covers you all the same. How many times shall we be forgiving one another? Not seven times, but seven times seven. Jesus Christ will forgive you every time, but you must repent. It is a contrite spirit in Isaiah that God has favor with. That is the who and the why. And verse 9 tells us the how. There is a penalty of eternal destruction. And those two words don't seem to go well together. How can you have something eternally destroyed? It seems like if it's destroyed, it can't be eternal. And if it goes on forever, it can't truly be destroyed. And yet Paul puts them together like it's no big deal. This is simply destruction that will never abate. The thing that popped into my mind when I was thinking about this, although it's, a, it's akin to it, but it's clearly different, is that bush in Exodus 3 that is burning. It's burning, but it's not being consumed. It's not consumed because the fire of God needs no fuel to burn. It's pure. But nevertheless, it burns. These people will always be destroyed, but they will never be consumed. That fire will always burn upon them, but it will never truly consume them. They will suffer destruction eternally without ever being destroyed. And they will do so away from the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, the way the ESV words this is that that destruction is something of the fact that they are pulled away from the very presence of God, like sort of unplugging something from life. Any of the electronics that you know when you unplug them from the wall, eventually if they've got batteries, they're going to run out if they don't turn off that moment. And being pulled away from the very source and the power of life, eventually people sort of die. And there's nothing really wrong with that interpretation. There's nothing bad about it. I think that it's true and it's good biblically. But I don't think that that's what Paul is getting at here. I think it is the very presence of Christ that brings destruction. So the ESV puts this helpful footnote in, which I think should be the actual text. The footnote is this. 
that this verse could read, instead of they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, rather it should read this way. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction that comes from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That is, when Jesus shows up, those who are unholy will not be able to stand in his sight because they are unholy. His very presence before them will burn them alive. I believe that this is the right reading because, again, in the book of Isaiah, this kind of language, the glory of his might, comes up time and time again, and it is the presence of God in the midst of people that actually destroys them. Listen to Isaiah 2, verses 10, verses 19, and verses 21. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty, that is the glory of his might. Verse 19, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Verse 21, enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. It is simply the presence of the Lord, simply the presence that will make all of these people forget their gods. They will all forget their idols. They will always forget what they have turned to for help. They will run to the mountains. They will hide under the earth. They will run to their graves, praying for death. And they cannot hide from the presence of the Lord. In Isaiah 57, Isaiah writes to these very people, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. Let those gods that you have run to give you aid. When Jesus Christ shows up, what is going to protect you in that day? What is going to protect an unbeliever in that day? Will his might, will his intelligence, will his fame, will his fortune, will his health hold up to protect him from the glory of Jesus Christ as it shines with the brilliance of a thousand suns? None of it will help them. It will blow away as easily as the dust of the graves that they are running to hide in. This is something that John picks up in the book of Revelation as the sixth seal is broken. John says this, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Beautiful turn of phrase, wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? No one. So when will this happen? Elusively, he doesn't give us a date. I'm still looking into manuscript evidence, but there's still no date. It is when he comes back to be glorified in his saints, that his work among persecuted people, that Jesus Christ for those who are being persecuted, is worthy of their being persecuted. So he is glorified in them when he comes back. That is when he will return. 
and you will marvel at him. That's a wonderful addition. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at, to, to be awestruck by. So this happens all the time in the Gospels. Jesus walks on water, or he multiplies fishes and loaves, or he he heals somebody who had been crippled for his entire life for 40 years, or he drives out demons, or he does any of a number of miraculous things, and people stand there slack-jawed and marvel at him. This is precisely what it's going to be like when he returns. You will stand in amazement at him. Many of you have really powerful imaginations. Many of you think highly of Jesus. And you can imagine his glory and his beauty and his brilliance. But nevertheless, when he returns, he will be more glorious than you can imagine. No matter how good your imagination No one in this place who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be let down by his coming. You won't stand there and be like, meh, meh, okay. I would have done it with a little more flair, but no, you're going to stand amazed at the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, even as we're going to sing that song, as much as you might mean those words, will not have any meaning Once he comes, you will find out how flat and ineffectual those words are to describe the scene that you see when our Lord actually makes his appearance. And this is because you believed. Not in fear will you wait for the coming of the Lord, but in amazement, because you've believed the very testimony that Paul and Silas and Timothy have brought, that they have brought 2,000 years ago, that they bring even today that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he was raised for our justification, that people who confess and believe and trust in him, knowing what he commands, knowing that we need to repent of our sins and turn to him continuously, knowing that he will be faithful and just to forgive us on the last day, that our judgment has come and it has gone in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that we will stay with him forever. Friends, this is the testimony that we must believe in, This is the testimony that allows us to escape the burning anger and wrath of his justice and rather transforms us to be able to stand not in death before him, but in amazement before him when he comes. For Jesus himself will enact God's justice. Finally, in verses 11 and 12, we have an entreaty for God's justice. We have an entreaty. We have a prayer for God's justice. If we try, I think there's probably few of us who have been believers for long enough. We can think of people who we knew when we were younger, who seemed like colossus of the faith. Strong, deep, always doing what was right. We viewed them with a sense of awe and holiness that we thought we would never be able to attain. But as the years go on, So sure we were that they would stand among the saints that we are sort of flabbergasted as we watch as they enter into elderly years of their life or simply into the middle parts of their life and they begin to fall away. That the things that ought to occupy their time, the things that ought to be held dearest by them, they simply don't care for as much as they used to or as much as they seemed to used to. Or what's worse, 
They fall out of the faith completely. Such people are heartbreaking, but more to the point, they're devastating for other Christians. Especially if you've grown up watching these people. You know how weak your own faith is. You know how temptable you are. You know how easily you were led astray. And you watch this colossus of the faith continually be degraded and degraded and degraded and move slowly away from the faith. And you can think, if, if he fell or if she is falling, then what chance do I possibly have? It's very easy to become disillusioned. The Thessalonians could hardly have received more praise from Paul than they have already gotten. These two letters back-to-back are two of the the most positive letters, especially 1 Thessalonians, a positive letter written to a church. He seemed to be sure with all the insight that an apostle of Jesus Christ could muster that they will one day be destined to meet Jesus in the air and that they will meet him with the rest of the saints. He is sure that they had been chosen in 1 Thessalonians 1.4, that they had turned from idols to the living God in verse 9. And frankly, at the end of the last book, he assured them that not only are they headed in the right direction, but that Christ will see them through. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. It seems like a man who believes very fully that this group of people are going to make it through. Paul also simply refuses to let things be. He knows the precariousness of human beings and the fragility of their faith. And so while Paul is very clearly assured of them, he says, yet we pray all the more that your faithfulness will grow, that you will continue on the path that has been set before you and you will work and do it all the better in the future. He says that God and he prays that God would make them worthy of his calling. That these Thessalonians might demonstrate a true and faithful walk before the world in the gospel. That they might become holy before God. And through trials and tribulations, that they would walk faithfully through those things. It's not that you ever deserve the kingdom. It's not that God placed you in the kingdom because you deserve to be placed there but that by the work of God, you can be made into the kind of person that God wants in his kingdom. You are sanctified. You are made holy. Further, Paul prays that they they might have every resolve for good and every work of faith come true. Paul doesn't want the good plans of the Thessalonians to be thwarted. Through God's help, he wants to see those plans come to fruition. And what's more, he wants them to flourish in the world. He wants what they have longed for good to actually come to pass. Friends, we often come up with good plans or we come up with good ideas that we want to see happen, but they come to nothing. I wonder if it's not our lack of praying like this that makes it so. We rely on our strength. We rely on our ingenuity, our might, our cleverness, our foresight not realizing that so much of this world is outside of our control and outside of our manipulation, not realizing or not thinking or not considering the fact that there is an enemy who doesn't want to see our good plans come to fruition. And without appealing to a God who by his own might and by his own power can make these things be true, our plans fail to come to fruition. They do not happen because we don't go to the one who can make them happen, who brings all things to pass according to the counsel of his will. 
It is the very power of God who works to bring these things about. Please understand, this is not just some program of good works outside of the gospel that we work at. It's not though you say, well, we've got the gospel here, that's good. We should also probably be doing good things on the side here, so let's do this, 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 and this. No, but these good works are an outflowing of the gospel. They're an outworking of the very gospel that you belong to a different kingdom, so you live differently. And these things are not just for us. Paul goes on to say, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. They are done so that Jesus Christ might be seen even by a fallen world as glorious and wonderful. That our lives ought to be lived in a way that people, when they think of us, although they might disagree with us, cannot help but notice the good things that we do. They might say, well, that crossway and the people there, you know, I know that they believe X, Y, and Z, and those things are pretty loathsome, but I, I gotta admit, they're actually pretty good people, right? Or as Peter would put it, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They, they're not gonna be able to help it. God's gonna show up, and they're gonna say, listen, these people, are, they're wretched people, they're all evildoers, but yeah, okay, they did, they did some good things. They're not going to be able to keep from speaking of the right and good things that we do. That is the kind of lives that we ought to live so that Christ receives glory from it. Perhaps they won't recognize it. Perhaps they won't see it. Fair enough. Work anyway. Love anyway. Show patience kindness, compassion, joy, and humility, for in these things your Lord is glorified in you. But as we often pray, this is not just for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is also for our good. Paul goes on to say, and you in him. Our name, the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you, and you will thus be glorified in him as we are one with him, his death is our death, his life is our life, his glory, then by the great grace of our Lord Jesus Christ becomes our glory. Realize how amazing he is. This Jesus, to whom all glory, power, wealth, might, blessing, honor is due, all majesty to be ascribed to his name, could have saved us and made us the lowliest of lowly servants in his kingdom, walking beneath him so that his feet would never have to touch the ground and he would just walk on our backs and we would all consider it worthy to be simply in his presence, doesn't just save us that way, but makes us co-heirs with him so that his glory is our glory so that his inheritance is our inheritance, so that his good is our good. What an amazing Savior he is. Friends, let us be continually in prayer for these things for one another. For we need to be faithful to the end of our dying days until our last breath let us persevere and walk faithfully. Let us pray that the weak might be strengthened, that the failing might stand, that the astray might return, that those who falter might righten themselves, that those who are proud might be humbled, that those who are strong may continue, 
and that those who are faithful might persist to the very end. And let us do this all the more as we fear God and fear eternal destruction that comes with those who refuse to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fear the Lord. Love the family of faith. Persevere to the end. Let us pray. Father, we ask that even while we are not in a situation where persecution is widespread, or if it exists, is as severe as we know it to be in other locations, nevertheless, there are so many different temptations and pressures on your people always to be pulled away from the gospel to other loves. Let that not be so here. Keep us close to you. Let us always be faithful and true. When we sin, Father, and may we never sin, but when we do sin, Father, give us repentance and forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. Give us always the hope of his death and resurrection. And may our lives be lived in such a way that he is continually glorified in us. For this we pray, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, for his glory and our good. Amen.